WF Strong, your host and storyteller. Welcome back. Seems that last week's story was particularly popular. Glad you liked the memorable ending. Uh, certainly a fine lesson in there. Reminded me of advice I once got from a man who, who had started up dozens of successful businesses in his life. He said, one thing to know, give the town the business it needs, not what you want it to have. And that's what Mr. Foreman did. And you also have evidence of the truth of the proverb that when fate closes a door, another one is opened. If you look carefully, you'll find it. This is the 16th episode of Beyond Texas, completion of the fourth month, and already we have listeners in 16 countries. I'm proud of that. Most are in Texas still, because that's where I started out. And you can just about name any city or town in Texas, and there's a listener there, or two. The big cities are all represented, Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, Austin, San Antonio, El Paso, Amarillo, Lubbock, etc. And as always, there are the unusual Texas city names included in the list. Cut and Shoot, Cactus, Pflugerville, Comfort, Mercedes, Paris. And then the well-known mid-sized cities, Abilene, McAllen, Tyler, College Station, San Marcos, San Marcos, some say, Corpus Christi, Seguin, and on and on. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. You can support this podcast via patreon.com. You just go there and uh, search for Beyond Texas, and you can make a monthly donation that seems reasonable to you. Patrons of the podcast get a few extras now and then, an extra story or perhaps further insights into each week's podcast. I don't have merch, as is common for many now. I don't even like the word merch. I don't like asking for support, but... I would like to be able one day to hire an audio engineer so you don't have to rely on my rather poor production skills. But that's a story for another day. Today's podcast begins with a story that Mark Twain delighted in telling in his latter years when he was in his 70s. I'll tell it in his voice. We do have a good idea what he sounded like. He talked slowly with a distinct southern accent and tended to jerk his words a bit. Uh, We know this from journalist descriptions and from one short recording of him that tells us what he sounded like. But if I were to talk as slowly as he actually did in this age, it would drive you crazy. So I'll speed it up a bit. But here's the story that he liked to tell. Not long ago, I came down with a bad case of influenza. And the doctor come to me and he said, look here. I can kill you in a week. You must give up all smoking, all drinking, all swearing, all excessive eating. By the end of the week, you'll be on your feet again. So I did. I gave up smoking and drinking and swearing and excessive eating. And by the end of the week, I was better. So I gave thanks to God, and I I took to these delicacies again. It wasn't long after that that an elderly lady friend of mine came down with the very same thing. And I went to her, and I said, look here. I can kill you in a week. You must give up all drinking, all smoking, all swearing, and all excessive eating. By the end of the week, you'll be better. Well, she said she couldn't give up smoking and drinking and swearing because she had never done any of those things. So there it was, you see. She had neglected her habits. Why, she was just a sinking ship with no freight to throw overboard. It was a pity. One or two little bad habits 
might have saved them. When Twain would tell this story and many other similar ones, he would do it straight-faced, deadpan, as the expression goes. He would not laugh at his own humor, nor would he let on that he suspected that it was funny in any way. Sometimes he would appear surprised when the audience laughed. He tended to maintain a serious pose in the midst of uproarious levity. In his time, he was one of the best-paid speakers in America, making $500 a night on the Lyceum circuit. Huge money. He loved doing it. As he said, once I discovered lecturing, I never worked another day of my life. But he didn't like one aspect of these lecture tours. When he went to smaller communities, they often used a church for the lecture. And he said that the church environment made people too reserved. They wouldn't laugh in church. One time he said a man came up to him after the lecture and said, that was the funniest thing I ever heard. It was all I could do to keep from laughing right out loud there in the meeting. Another thing he disliked was the elaborate and lengthy introductions given by local town leaders wherein they attempted to be funny and often failed and drew out their moment in the sun to such an extent that Twain got started with an audience that was already tired and restless. So he started taking over the task of these introductions himself. He introduced himself by satirizing the hyperbolic intros so common in that era. Ladies and gentlemen, the man I wish to present to you is a man whose great learning and whose veneration for truth have only been exceeded by his high moral character and his majestic presence. I uh, <coughs> refer in these vague and somewhat general terms to myself. I don't much care for introductions, but I feel if we must have them, I would prefer to do the act myself. That way I can rely on getting in all the facts. Well, I was born modest, but it wore off. No, I don't much care for introductions. People have a habit of running off a long string of beautiful adjectives, saying the most wonderful things about you, and building you up a good deal. It's the compliments that hurt. Why, it gives a man too much to live up to. If you introduce a girl into society as the greatest singer, or the finest conversationalist, you may as well knock her in the head with a brick before she ever gets started. I only had one introduction, which ever seemed to me to be just the right thing. It was brimful of grace to the very end. A man came to me before the lecture, and he said, Now, you don't want any compliments. And I said, Of course I don't want any compliments. And he said, Very well. And he went out and he introduced me this way. He said, Ladies and gentlemen, I wish to present to you a Mr. Mark Twain. I know nothing about this man. Least is, I know only two things. One is, he has never been in the penitentiary, and the other is, I don't know why. Well, you see, an introduction like that will set a man at ease right off. Twain thought a great deal in his 40 years on the platform about what makes things funny. He wrote a little essay called How to Tell a Humorous Story. Here's what he said in that essay. I do not claim that I can tell a story as it ought to be told, I only claim to know how a story ought to be told, for I have been almost daily in the company of the most expert storytellers for many, many years. 
There are several kinds of stories, but only one difficult kind, and that's the humorous story. I will talk mainly about that one. The humorous story is American. The comic story is English. The witty story is French. The humorous story depends for its effect upon the manner of the telling. The comic story and the witty story depend upon the matter. The humorous story may be spun out to great length and may wander around as much as it pleases and arrive nowhere in particular. But the comic and witty stories must be brief and end with a point. The humorous story bubbles along gently. The others burst. The humorous story is strictly a work of art. It is high and delicate art, and only an artist can tell it. But no art is necessary in telling the comic and the witty story. Anybody can do it. The art of telling a humorous story, understand, I mean by word of mouth, not print, was created in America and has remained here at home. The humorous story is told gravely. The teller does his best to conceal the fact that he even dimly suspects that there is anything funny about it. But the teller of the comic story tells you beforehand that it is one of the funniest things he has ever heard, and then he tells it with eager delight and is the first person to laugh when he gets through. And sometimes, if he has had good success, he is so glad and happy that he will repeat the punchline of it and glance around from face to face, collecting applause, and then repeat it again. As America expanded westward, and Twain with it, the landscape created a literature. It was natural that the enormous rocky mountains and vast deserts, with their huge saguaro cacti, the dramatic Pacific coast, and the forests with the tallest trees in the world, the sequoias and the redwoods, that they should produce a literature of tall tales of exaggeration. Paul Bunyan dug the Grand Canyon. Pecos Bill roped tornadoes. Twain and his fellow Western journalists and storytellers enjoyed making up stories that would astound Eastern audiences. They were literary cartoonists. Exaggeration was their stock and trade, and that exaggeration was enshrined in the entertaining dialects of the West. Twain's first widely distributed and career-making story was called The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County. He was just 30 years old when it was published in the New York Saturday Press. The story observes all the parameters he laid out above. It was an oral story in print. It went viral by today's standards. It was picked up by newspapers across the country, and Twain was made immediately famous. He had some misgivings. He thought, he thought it was a little sad because he had written much better things that he would have preferred to have been known for. He was a little disappointed to have achieved fame for what he called this villainous backwoods sketch. But the Jumping Frog story observes all the parameters of humorous storytelling that Twain laid out in his How to Tell a Humorous Story. I'm going to tell you this story. I'm not going to read it to you. I'm going to tell it to you as he told it on stage when he was lecturing. He told it as if it was something that happened to him. I don't want you to tune out now with the idea that this is a children's story or that you know what there is to know about the story already. It's a masterpiece of American humor. I want to tell you the story and then tell you why it fits so beautifully into his particular literary style and philosophy of humor. It's a story within a story. This setup is vital. 
because the persona doing the telling controls the manner. Here we go. Twain says, When I was out west in California, I got a letter from a friend of mine back east, and he said that I should look up a certain Simon Wheeler when I was out there, and I should ask him if he had ever heard of a certain Reverend Leonidas W. Smiley. Now, after all these years, I believe that my friend never knew a Reverend Leonidas W. Smiley, had never heard of such a person. And he only conjectured that if I asked old Wheeler about him, that it would remind him of his infamous Jim Smiley, and he would go to work and bore me to death with some exasperating reminiscence of him, as long and tedious as it should be absolutely useless to me. Well, if that was the design, if that was his plan, it succeeded. I found Simon Wheeler dozing comfortably by a barroom stove in the dilapidated old tavern there at Angel's Camp. He roused up and gave me good day. And I said to him, Have you ever heard of a certain Reverend Leonidas W. Smiley? Reverend Leonidas W. Smiley. Hmm. Reverend Leonidas W. Simon Wheeler backed me into a corner and he blockaded me there with his chair and then he sat me down and reeled off the monotonous narrative which follows his paragraph. He never smiled, he never frowned. He never changed his voice from the gentle flowing key to which he tuned the initial sentence. He never betrayed the slightest suspicion of enthusiasm, but all through the interminable narrative there ran a vein of impressive earnestness and sincerity which showed me plainly that, so far from his imagining that there was anything ridiculous or funny about his story, he regarded it as a really important matter, and admired its two heroes as men of transcendent genius and finesse. Reverend Leonidas W. Smiley. Well, there was a fellow here once by the name of Jim Smiley in the winter of 49, and maybe it was the spring of 50. I don't recollect exactly which one somehow, though what makes me think it is one of the others because the big flume weren't finished when he first come to the camp. But anyway, he was the curiousest man about always betting on anything that turned up you ever see. Anyway, suit the other man, but suit him just so as he got a bet. He was satisfied. But still, he was lucky. He was uncommon lucky. He must always come out winner. If there was a horse race, you'd find him flush, or you'd find him busted at the end of it. If there was a dog fight, he'd bet on it. If there was a cat fight, he'd bet on it. Why, if there was two birds setting on a fence, he'd bet you which one would fly first. If he even seen a straddle bug start to go anywhere, he would bet you how long it would take him to get to wherever he was going to. And if you took him up on it, he'd follow that straddle bug all the way to Mexico if he had to, just to find out where he was bound for and how long he was on the road. Well, this year, Smiley had rat terriers and chicken cocks and tomcats and all them kind of things till you couldn't rest. You couldn't fetch nothing for him to bet on, but he'd met you. He catched a frog one day, and he took him home and said he calculated to educate him, and he'd never done nothing for three months but sit in his backyard and learn that frog to jump. And you betcha he did learn him, too. He'd give him a little punch from behind. The next minute, you see that frog whirling in the air like a donut. See him turn one somerset, maybe a couple, if he got a good start and come down flat-footed and all right like a cat. He got him up so in the matter of catching flies and kept him in practice so constant that he'd nail a fly every time as far as he could see him. 
Smiley said all a frog wanted was an education, and he could do most anything, and I believe him. Why, I've seen him set old Daniel Webster down here on this floor. Daniel Webster was the name of the frog, and he'd sing out, Flies, Daniel, flies, and quick and you could wink, he'd spring straight up and snake a fly off the counter there, and drop down on the floor again as solid as a gob of mud and fall to scratching the side of his head with his hind foot as indifferent as if he had no idea he'd be doing any more than any frog might do. You never see a frog so modest and straightforward as he was. After all, he was a gifted. And when it come to fair and square jumping on a dead level, he could get over more ground at one straddle than any animal of any breed you ever see. Jumping on a dead level was his strong suit, you understand. Well, Smiley, he used to keep the beast in a little lattice box, and he used to fetch him downtown sometimes and lay for a bet. One day a feller, a stranger in the camp he was, he come across him with this box, and he says, What might it be that you got in the box? Smiley says, sort of indifferent, like, Well, it might be a parrot, or it might be a canary, maybe, but it ain't. It's only just a frog. And the feller took it and looked at it careful and turned it around this way and that and said, Hmm, so it is. What's he good for? Well, Smiley says, easy and careless like, he's good enough for one thing, I should judge. He can outjump any frog in Calaveras County. The feller took the box back again, took another long look, and he gave it back to Smiley and says, Very deliberate. Well, I don't see no points about that frog's any better than any other frog. Maybe you don't, Smiley says. Maybe you understand frogs, and maybe you don't understand them. Maybe you've had experience, and maybe you ain't only an amateur, as it were. Anyways, I got my opinion. I'll rest $40 that he can outjump any frog in Calaveras County. The feller studied a minute, and then he looked kind of sad, like, Well, I'm only a stranger here. I ain't got no frog. But if I had a frog, I'd bet you. And then Smiley says, That's all right, that's all right. If you'll hold my box a minute, I'll go and get you a frog. So the feller took the box, and he put up his $40 along with Smiley's and sat down to wait. So he sat there a good while, thinking and thinking to himself, and then he got the frog out, and he prized his mouth open. He took a teaspoon and filled him full of quail shot, filled him pretty near up to the chin, he did, and he set him down on the floor to wait. Well, Smiley, he went off to the swamp, and he slopped around a long time, finally catched a frog, fetched him in, give him to this feller. And he says, now, if you're ready, you set him alongside of Daniel with his four paws, just even with Daniel, and I'll give the word. And then he says, one, two, three, get. And him and the fellows, they touched up the frogs from behind, and the new frog hopped off lively. But Daniel, he gave a heave, and he hoisted up his shoulder so, just like a Frenchman. But it weren't no use. He couldn't budge. He was planted as solid as a church, and he could no more stir than if he was anchored out. Smiley was a good deal surprised, and he was disgusted, too, but, but he didn't have no idea what the matter was. Well, the feller took the money and started away, and when he was going out the door, he sort of jerked his thumb over his shoulder this way at Daniel, he says, very deliberate. Well, I don't see no points about that frog's any better than any other frog. Smiley, he stood scratching his head and looking down at Daniel a long time, and at last he says, I do wonder what in the nation that frog throwed off for. I wonder if, wonder if there ain't something the matter with him. Pierce looked mighty baggy somehow. And then he catched Daniel up by the nap of the neck and lifted him up, and he said, Why, blame my cats if he don't weigh five pounds. And he turned him upside down. He belched out a double hat full of shot. 
and then he see how it was. He was the maddest man. He set that frog down and took out after that fellow, but he never catched him. Here Simon Wheeler heard his name called from the front yard and got up to see what was wanted, and turning to me as he moved away, he said, You just sit there, stranger, and rest easy. I'm going to be back with you in just a second. But I did not think a continuation of the history of the enterprising Bhagavan Jim Smiley was likely to afford me much information concerning the Reverend Leonidas W. Smiley, so I took my leave. Well, that's the story in short form. There's more to it, of course, but the part I wanted to focus on to show you the unique features of Twain's storytelling, and actually this applies to a great number of his short stories, he goes into elaborate detail describing the narrator in the story because the narrator gives us the manner of the telling. And the manner of the telling, as he pointed out, is where the humor is. So we have here, so we go back to the beginning, we see the key to the story. The narrator is one who never smiled, he never frowned, he never changed his voice from the gentle flowing key to which he tuned the initial sentence. He never betrayed the slightest suspicion of enthusiasm, but all through the interminable narrative there ran a vein of impressive earnestness and sincerity, which showed me plainly that so far from his imagining that there was anything ridiculous or funny about his story, he regarded it as a really important matter. That is what Twain did with so many of his short stories. He would set up a narrator who had a unique style and describe that style to you before he showed you the style. Same was true of his grandfather's old ram, one of his classic stories, in which he enshrines in that story a storyteller with a perfect memory meaning that he remembers all kinds of details that are irrelevant to the story and keeps getting sidetracked as he tries to relate the tale. And this is where the humor is. Plus, he says that you had to get this guy perfectly symmetrically drunk in order to get this story in the best possible version. And a lot of us have been around older people who start to tell these stories, who start to tell a story from their past, and because they've lived so long, they keep getting wrapped up in other details which lead them down uh, you know, a different path than the one they want to be on. And it can be you know, quite amusing. In fact, I think I'm getting there myself. The Mark Twain Prize has selected, for some 20 years now, great storytellers who have demonstrated lifelong genius in the art form. They are all fabulous storytellers. I like that Richard Pryor was the first one chosen because he often told long, intricate stories where the humor was in the manner, not the matter. Richard Pryor said upon receiving the award, I feel great about accepting this prize. I am proud that, like Mark Twain, I have been able to use humor to lessen people's hatred. In Richard Pryor's stories, there might not be a punchline at all, but there are brilliant turns of phrase and metaphors and dialects that were springboards to laughter. Bob Newhart also fit the style of the deadpan humorist. He received the Mark Twain Prize. George Carlin, storyteller, linguist. Bill Cosby, brilliant storyteller, but he was stripped of his award when he was convicted of sex crimes. Ellen DeGeneres, also a recipient, paved the way for women in comedy. Carol Burnett, a winner of the prize, paved the way for Ellen. And the most recent and the most recent recipient, Dave Chappelle, like Twain, he's a social critic. He's a mesmerizing storyteller and a master of dialects. 
Twain represented the paradigm shift in humor from British to American. Before him, the dominant forms of humor and literary humor were imported British styles. Hemingway said that all American fiction has its roots in one book, and that is Huckleberry Finn. The same was true for Twain in American humor. He was also perhaps the first to understand what it meant to be a celebrity and how to use media to sustain that celebrity. And that's what we'll talk about next week. Until then, get out there and tell some stories of your own. No greater force in the world than powerful stories well told. Write to me anytime at wfstrongpodcast at gmail.com. I will answer you.